Well, good morning again. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, for those who said yes, we give thanks for them and for the ultimate sacrifice of their body and blood. We ask God that even as we remember and mourn and celebrate on this day, those who said yes, we pray that you would be with their families, be with their friends, be with those who served with them and lived to tell about it. We praise you, God, for this model of self-sacrificing for a greater good because it comes from the one who said yes first. And his name is Jesus. We thank you for those who followed his example into war and followed his example into fear and into a greater good. And we trust God that you will be there with all who love them and miss them on this day. So we revere you, God, and we lift your name high. And we remember those who made that sacrifice today. We are so grateful for their service and the freedoms that we enjoy because of that sacrifice. In your name we pray and together we say, amen and amen. Well, thank you for celebrating with me the person of Jesus today. And as V said, we're in the second week of our series. We're calling Getting to Know God. And if you didn't know yet what we've been studying, it's the Apostles' Creed. Now, how many times in the last year have you actually read the Apostles' Creed? Well, I can tell you this for sure. If you were here in worship with us when we were doing in-person baptisms, you would have read the Apostles' Creed. We do the Apostles' Creed every time we have a baptism here at Trinity. and We do it in a responsive way, kind of like we do the readings and the confession here at South Naperville. And as such, when we do that, we have the opportunity to remember what the original uh, church would have done when they put together a faith statement. And the question becomes this, as we are learning how to state what we believe, I want you to imagine yourself, if you will, and then I'll ask my question. I want you to imagine yourself, if you leave here today, and let's say you're walking around in the township where you live, downtown, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, I know I'm a stranger, but I'm just curious. What do you think of Jesus? How would you respond? Would you have a 20 or 30 second elevator speech that you'd be able to come up with to share your basic beliefs in Jesus? If not, this is a great opportunity to practice that skill. Because believe it or not, at some point in your life in conversation, you will have the opportunity to share what you believe about the person of Jesus. This is how and why the original church hundreds of years ago got started with putting together creeds. One of the other reasons why is because misinformation got out about the person of Jesus, along with the person of the Father, who is maker of heaven and earth, and the person of the Holy Spirit who works in and through us to this very day, right? Would you agree that there's misinformation out there in our culture about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, specifically the person of Jesus? If you'd agree with that, as I would with you, that's a reason why to go back to something like an ancient creed and reestablish what it is we believe about the person and the ministry of Jesus. So let's dive in and get started. Would you read these words on screen with me? This is the first line 
of the second article of the Apostles' Creed that deals with Jesus. Here we go, one, two, three. And I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. Now, it's pretty well undisputed in the church that if you read the Bible enough, you're going to see evidence in the Scripture that Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is not God's nephew. Jesus is not God's long-lost friend. Jesus has a specific relationship with God the Father, wherein God the Father fathered Jesus, his son. He was born, the Virgin Mary, we'll look at here in just a moment. But the creed, even though we don't usually dispute the fact that Jesus is God's son, the creed throws us a little bit of a curveball at the end of this first line when it brings this word Lord into the game. Now, let's say you go back to your scene in your township where you're walking around downtown and somebody comes up and asks you what you think about Jesus. What if that person were an English Lord from the 16th century? First of all, that would be a little weird, right? For a couple of reasons. One, you're not expecting to run into somebody from the 16th century. But secondly, you're not expecting to run into a Lord. The question is, what is a Lord? And in the church, when we say Jesus is my Lord, what exactly is it we're talking about? Because you and I, unless we're watching Netflix, we don't have a lot of exposure to lords and ladies in our culture, do we? In fact, my first exposure to a Lord was reading Lord of the Flies in grade school. The teachers in the room would identify with this. Perhaps, speaking of Netflix, you like to watch Downton Abbey. Now throw your hand up and wave it all around if you like Downton Abbey. Yeah, we got a couple in the room. Lord Grantham, and it really, I did have to look that up after all. Lord Grantham is a lord in the Downton Abbey storyline. What I didn't have to look up was the Lord of the Rings. And this is Aragorn who rises through the ranks up to his kingship by being humble and yet wielding a mighty sword and showing courage and character. Maybe more recently, you can identify with Star-Lord from the Marvel Universe. He's a lot of fun. Does he act like a lord all the time? Well, that's questionable, right? But we take our context of what a lord is from the media we watch and read and consume. But yet, the, the creed starts off right from the beginning talking about Jesus being our lord. So when we say we believe that, what is it we mean? There's a young man walking around in Philadelphia, downtown Philadelphia, twice a month dressed as Jesus. Now he bought himself some Jesus clothes and he bought some materials from Home Depot, including some nice caster wheels to put at the bottom of his cross where he carries, in which he carries the cross seven miles one way and then seven miles back through downtown Philadelphia twice a month. He's known as Philly Jesus. His name is actually Michael Grant, but he's known as Philly Jesus in Philadelphia. And in fact, he does this twice a month for a specific reason, which I'll share next. But one thing you'll find around Michael's trek through the middle of downtown Philadelphia is that sometimes he gets in trouble with the law. Now, this is not too dissimilar to the original Jesus, who was getting in trouble with the religious leaders and teachers of the law and scribes and Pharisees. But the kind of law trouble Michael Grant gets in is he shows up at certain people's businesses throughout the week, dressed as Jesus, carrying his cross, and the business is not expecting Jesus to show up to do business that day, 
nor are, is the business expecting Jesus to show up and interact with their customers that day. So a lot of businesses will call the cops on Philly Jesus. The cops know him by name and come out and interact with him. He feels that his rights are being violated by not being able to express himself as Philly Jesus in front of people's businesses. This attitude might be a little different from the original Jesus, you might agree. But the reason he does this work twice a month is this. And I like what he says. He says, I'm not the real Jesus. I'm just a huge fan. I'm doing it as a walking billboard for the King of Kings. I'm doing it as a walking billboard for the King of Kings. This is a little bit of a taste of what it's like to have a Lord. Somebody who is so much bigger than you and your life that they are above and beyond your life, so much so that it's like a privilege and an honor to rep them or to represent them. And yet there's something very special about this kind of Lord. He's called a Lord of Lords and a King of Kings. We'll go there next. In fact, the Apostle Paul is also a big fan of Jesus and writes about him in the most succinct job description of Jesus in the Bible. You'll find this in Colossians chapter 1. This is verses 15 through 20. Here's what the scripture says. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. So Jesus wasn't created. He was born, which means that he came from before time. And as the creed teaches us, in one way, shape, or form, Jesus is both co-eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. You see, we believe that the three in one, they were hanging out together before time like a small group in community. Jesus was sent to earth for a specific reason. Paul goes on and says this in verse 16 and says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him. Through who? through Jesus, and for what purpose, church? For him. So Jesus is more than just a carpenter's son, wouldn't you agree? According to the scripture, Jesus is the general architect and contractor for all that has been made. Jesus is the one who from on high with the Father and Holy Spirit created all things. And in him, the scripture says, all things are for him, and having come through him, exists for his purposes. So this word Lord packs a punch. In fact, if you look up the word Lord in the Oxford English Dictionary, you'll find a couple of different iterations of it. The one that's all lower, ca or no caps at all, or lowercase, the one that's just lower, is just small letters, Lord, that comes from the medieval concept of a loaf ward. Now, have you ever heard this before? The word Lord is actually a compound of two words, loaf and ward. It refers to a medieval person who has enough wealth and resources to be able to provide bread to people who don't have enough. So a loaf ward is literally a medieval bread keeper. This is a person with enough resource to be able to share it with other people. So in one way, you could say that by applying the word Lord to Jesus... Jesus has a resource to share with you and me. 
There's another iteration of the word Lord that starts with a capital L. This one deals with a ruler having authority and having power over people. We believe Jesus has this power, as we'll discover next. And then there's yet another iteration of the word Lord where it's all caps. You'll see this mainly in the Old Testament. This refers to the person of God. If you ever wondered what God's actual name is, God's name is I Am. And that's Yahweh in the original language. But when the first English Bible writers were writing the English Bibles in the beginning, they didn't have a better word for Father God than Lord. So instead of making up a new word, they just capitalized all the letters of the word Lord. But no matter which iteration of the word Lord you use, one thing is clear and true. Jesus is a sovereign. Now, this is a little weird for us here in the United States because we have a president and we have elected officials in the government. We don't have a monarch. We don't have a king or a queen. But one thing we can say without doubt is that Jesus is a person who came to earth with resources to share, that Jesus has power and authority, and that Jesus is God. He is co-equal and co-eternal with Father and Holy Spirit. So Jesus is more than just a carpenter's son. Jesus is a big deal. He is a sovereign. He is a king from on high. But then where the ministry of Jesus gets really powerful and really nitty-gritty is what happens in the creed next. Would you be willing to read these words with me? One, two, three. Who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. You see, this part of the creed deals with the part of the Godhead, specifically Jesus, who took on flesh. Now, I want you to reach over to the person you're sitting next to and just give them a little pinch on the forearm. If you're sitting by yourself, reach out to your other arm and pinch your other arm. If the other person says, ow, it means they're alive. That's a good thing. Flesh hurts when you pinch it, when you invade it, when you do stuff to it. You see, Jesus is God with flesh on. You probably heard that before. But think about it in this way. When Jesus, as God, came to the earth and put on flesh, what he did is he took on your sin and mine. And the way he did it is by being born a real baby. Now, what do babies need? Babies need food. Babies need sleep. Babies need to be changed. Babies need to be burped. Babies need to be loved and played with. Do you feel like Jesus experienced all that as a baby? Yes. In fact, there's no evidence in the scripture that Jesus levitated as a baby or anything weird like that. Jesus was a real baby when he was born. And the scripture says in his flesh, his actual skin and bone and flesh, just like you and me, he suffered for us to deal with our sin. Now, what does that mean? It means that because Jesus knows what it's like to suffer in the flesh and overcome temptation, it means that you and I don't have to be perfect. We don't have to, when we suffer in the flesh, be perfect like Jesus was when he suffered in the flesh. It means that Jesus' suffering in the flesh dealt with our problem of sin, 
not only now in this life today, but in the future life we haven't even lived yet. Jesus died for our past, our present, and our future. And he did that by giving over the flesh that he was born into. The scripture says that he was crucified, that he died and he was buried in a real tomb. And then church, what happened three days later? That same body rose again from the grave. So you see God doing stuff in the flesh that a God doesn't have to do. But Jesus took on that flesh for a risk. And the risk is so that you and I could know God now and forever. You know, we have this little book in the church called the Small Catechism. If you've ever read the Small Catechism, good for you. Basically what it does is it summarizes all of our beliefs in a small package with the intention that you teach this kind of stuff to your kids. So you know how kids are. They need to assimilate new information in small bite-sized pieces, right? So we have a small catechism that's there for that purpose. It goes all the way back to the 1500s when Martin Luther first wrote it. But along with some help, he also produced what's called a large catechism. The large catechism has a ton of extra information in it, like this. Here's the reason why Jesus took on flesh and became human. It explains and expresses redemption. Now, what is it to redeem something? It's buying it back, isn't it? If you go to Kohl's later today and redeem your Kohl's cash, what are you going to get for that? You'll get $10 worth of something, right? $10 worth of value is bought back when you turn in that Kohl's cash. That's what it means to redeem. So when Jesus took on flesh and became our Lord, what he was doing is he was redeeming us back from a life of sin. He was taking on a risk of giving us the opportunity to believe in him, trust in him, and follow him. And as such, he took on the risk of bringing us into his kingdom by taking on flesh and blood. Three reasons. One, so that he would become human, conceived and born without any sin like you and I have. What is sin? Sin is anything that separates us from a holy and perfect and set-apart God. Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit with a real person. So he is both spiritual and what? Flesh. He is both heavenly and earthly. Secondly, he did this so that he could conquer sin that comes with our flesh. He did it so he could overcome it, that he could battle it and be victorious over it. He suffered, died, and was buried in a real tomb. Thirdly, he did this so that he could make satisfaction or actually pay back the price for sin that is written in the scripture as such. The wages of sin is death. Now, where do you find that scripture? That's Romans chapter 3. The wages or the payment of a sinful life is what? Is death. You see, you and I will experience death one day, will we not? Every single one of us dies. And yet every single one of us who trusts in Christ have the hope of redemption and resurrection. Say redemption and resurrection with me. One, two, three. Redemption and resurrection. So in the third purpose, Jesus made satisfaction or paid the price 
for our sin, not with silver nor gold, says the catechism, but what? His very precious blood, his body and blood. Paul refers to this idea back in Colossians 1 when he says Jesus is before all things. Remember Jesus hanging out with the Father and the Holy Spirit from before time, before he was born in the flesh? He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. How many things? All things, even unbelieving things. All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn. Now look at this. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Now remember we talked about the wages of sin being death, right? Jesus went into death just like you and I will experience someday so that he could conquer death and rise again from the dead, overcoming it. He literally did what it was required to conquer death and survive it, to come back from it. And as it says in Colossians, he did this so that he might have the supremacy. That refers to the sovereign nature of Jesus, who is both spiritual and what? Human. Jesus is both a sovereign God from on high and the God of the universe come down here in the flesh. Now, the creed doesn't leave us there as a cliffhanger. The creed goes on. And I want to invite you to finish out the second article of the creed by reading these words. Ready? One, two, three. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Some versions of the creed say thence. Some versions say there. Doesn't matter which. What matters is that Jesus ascended into heaven. He went back up to the sovereign spiritual realm. And to this very day, he sits at the right hand of God the Father. And it's like the two of them are hanging out together, discussing all manner of things that they have created, including you and me. And when we pray, and when we pray that in Jesus' name, and we're saying words to God that Jesus would say if he were praying them. Guess who hears those prayers? The two of them, along with their third, the Holy Spirit. They're listening, they're discussing, and they're planning a way to respond. That response may be instant. It may be yes to your prayers. The response may be no to your prayers. The response could be, just wait a little while and trust me. But no matter what, Jesus will return someday. And so as it stands right now, we don't have to refer to Jesus in the past tense all the time. That is why at Easter time we say these special words. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Not he was risen, but he is risen. He is alive. He lives to this day. Paul goes on and describes this in Colossians 1 again, back at verse 19. He says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness, the fullness of a deity, dwell in Jesus, and through him to reconcile to himself how many things? All things. 
Are Christians supposed to be good caretakers of the environment, including animals and plants and all that's been made? Yes. Why? Because Jesus died to redeem them too. Just like he died to redeem you and me. Through him to reconcile to himself all things, verse 20 says, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what I'm hoping the creed is painting a picture for you today is that Jesus is both sovereign and human, and yet he retains his divinity. He's still divine. To this very day, Jesus lives as God, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. This is the Jesus you see as you get to know him in the Bible, healing people, feeding people, giving them what they need, caring for them inside and out, cleansing the skin of lepers, feeding hungry people, providing for people who had nothing before they met him, especially spiritual hope. This is a Jesus who is sovereign and human and yet divine. So as we think of him in this way, it gives us the opportunity to share with other people what we believe about this special person of the Godhead. His name is Jesus. Can you remember with me the three things that Jesus is? They are, he is sovereign, he is human, he is divine. Can you say those with me? He is sovereign, he is human, he is divine. Do you know what it means to have a Lord? You've got someone who provides for you. You've got someone who rules over you in power and authority, yet with love, and came here and sacrificed himself for you. And you've got someone who is God. And he demonstrated that by fulfilling prophecy and by doing miracles and signs. And he continues to do those today. This is the Jesus we know and love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this Jesus we know and love. Thank you for giving us a God that we can know and love. Thank you for giving us a God who is not only providing for our needs, but is powerful and sovereign from on high. And at the same time comes to earth for me and for those I love. Heavenly Father, give me the words to speak when there's an opportunity to share who Jesus is, the real Jesus, the one who is sovereign and yet human and yet divine. Give me the words to speak, especially as I share what Jesus has done for me. Jesus died on the cross for me and he, in the grave, was busy behind the scenes proclaiming his power and his rulership, his kingship and his lordship. And rising again from the grave, he is the firstborn from among the dead. So one day, God, I have that hope in you too, that I may rise from the grave and that death has been defeated. So Father, as we sing and as we respond and as we rest in this truth, we ask that you equip us with the words to speak, that we may share our faith when called upon. 
It's your name we pray. In your name we pray. And together we say, Amen and Amen.